Welcome to the Creek Default Podcast, where we discuss the latest news, laws, and trends affecting your industry. Welcome everybody back to the Creek Devault Podcast. I'm joined today by a special guest, the leader of our municipal law and public finance practice group, and a good friend of mine, David Corbett. Dave, thanks for being with me today. Thank you for having me. Dave, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about your practice. You are the leader of our municipal law group, but uh, you've, you've, you've got quite the diverse practice. Yes, indeed. Um, as do many of us it, it, within the group. Um, the official title would be Public Finance and Municipal Law uh, Practice Group. We cover uh, municipal finance, uh, finance matters that municipalities are undertaking to develop infrastructure for the municipality, uh, also supporting uh, private interests in developers who are looking for um, support on their development projects, whether they be for public purposes or private purposes, uh, that's allowable in statute. Um, that takes up a portion of my practice on the public finance side. On the municipal side, um, we represent the city's Economic Development Commission, uh, as well as uh, the city's building authority, uh, and have other roles in, in work that we do on the municipal law side. So in that practice, we help the city make sure that it's uh, uh, limiting its exposure to liability, uh, managing and corporate governance matters, uh, as well as strategic advisors to um, uh, navigate the challenging and complex laws that apply to their businesses. Yeah, and when you say cities, I, I want to clarify, you are talking about various municipalities, right? We represent states, counties, towns, cities, all types of municipalities. 100%, yes. Yeah. Municipalities, towns, uh, third-class cities, towns, yeah. um, any uh, municipal corporation that uh, is recognized as a subdivision of the state of Indiana. Right. Uh, and before we delve into that public finance uh, portion of the discussion and, and, and municipal law portion of the discussion, I also wanted to mention you're a member of our executive committee. Yes, I am. Hey. I've, uh, uh, it, it gives me a little bit of concern that my partners voted me in, but I'm happy to sit on our executive committee, which manages our business. And Krieg DeVault prides itself on our what we call our core values, right? We pride ourselves on being uh, uh, exceptional professionals and bringing our clients that value. What is it about our firm, and maybe even from a municipal law standpoint, that really makes us rise above? Well, I, I would say uh, our first goal and effort is to really understand our clients' business and to be of support in their strategic decisions and make sure that the unknowns are at least raised by our professionals and um, and trying to be addressed before they are actually realized. And so when we implement our core values internally, we are making sure everyone has a commitment to the clients, ownership, respect, and excellence in the work that we do. And so we treat each other in that regard, and uh, we treat our clients with those core values in mind, making sure that we are internalizing their problems and finding solutions before the solutions are even needed. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good description of what that really does mean to each of us. So municipal law, let's start there. Municipal law is as old as the, as the United States and followed us over from England, in fact. What um, it has evolved, 
And I think it's one of the areas of the law where uh, it is a unique section because oftentimes what I call lay people are applying the law, right? City council, uh, town council, and even in smaller municipalities, townships, uh, you can have a diverse group of people looking to you for advice. How is it, what are the, what are the most common challenges you see in the municipal law arena? And I know that's a broad topic, but hey, it's a podcast. Well, I can pull out a couple uh, out of my pocket. So, you know, some of the most challenging that we encounter are uh, municipalities trying to determine the authority that they have to operate. Some, uh, Some times it's not evidently clear whether or not the municipality has the power to do something that seems reasonable, uh, a reasonable uh, use of taxpayer funding to uh, apply to a certain situation or to expend on a certain expenditure, um, and trying to help the municipalities understand uh, what the limits and requirements are on use of their dollars really can sometimes be complex. Um, We often run into... um, the situation where, uh, you know, the, the laws in open door laws are really meant to allow the public to have insight and provide transparency on the decision making process that the municipalities undertake. And so it's really advising the public officials on what um, disclosures they are required to make, what transparency they are required. And we are very conservative in our view to uh, support the municipality in making the proper disclosures uh, so the public is well aware of the undertaking and uh, what, what consideration You know, you bring up that point. It it reminds me of a recent conversation I had with uh, a a town official, and that that really did boil down to how much do I have to make available? What where are the limits? It is not. In fact, it still is a, a a concern. And there are things that the municipality would need to do without being able to provide notice uh, or needing some discretion. The law doesn't necessarily make city hall or town hall uh, the public library where anyone can stroll in and get whatever they want, does it? It, it, it does not. Um, there are limits. When a municipality is undertaking a transaction or deciding some strategic direction, uh, that process is still protected. Uh, the, the municipal leadership can still do their investigations, figure out uh, what the proper path is. But once there is a final decision, the laws require the public officials and the municipality to be more transparent in that process and at the time that the decision is being made. So there are, you know, if you think of zoning laws, um, for example, the deliberations uh, that staff, uh, a planning staff would make or planning commission would make would be protected. What they ask, what they're investigating, uh, what they are, um, you know, evaluating and making a strategic decision or decision on a zoning matter is protected information. But what is not protected is the considerations that they're making to approve that matter, the the facts and information and findings of 
that they have made uh, and examined to make that final determination that this decision should be approved is not protected matter. And once you actually make a final decision, then the laws also allow uh, for public um, transparency. You can then go in and, and retrieve more information than during the deliberation phase. So that's just an example where um, the public doesn't always have access. You can't go to the mayor's desk and grab some of the you know, papers off the mayor's desk. Right. But once the final decision is made, you can have access to the information so you can uh, at least evaluate um, uh, the, the basis for the decision and direction. Yeah, and, and that's right. And then also in that same vein, the decisions I have been part of controversial decisions, as have you. Not every municipal decision is clear-cut or easy. Some of them are difficult. Some of them will leave a segment of the populace feeling unhappy with the outcome, and that's just the nature of politics, right, and, and municipal law. Uh, but the decision is not subject to that. Uh, that. That's one of the conversations I often have at cocktail parties is, uh, you know, I went to a city hall meeting and I told them I didn't want them to do that. Well, that's great. They listened to you. They considered that information along with other information. But ultimately, there are only a finite number of votes that count during that legislative process, right? Correct, correct. So, you know, just to elaborate on that, there's, uh, again, the transparency. What the, the process is meant to establish is that your public officials are going to be making the final decision. Um, my kids don't... Uh, tell me uh, their bedtime, we decide what their bedtime is. Right. But we receive their information. If they think it should be extended to 1130, we'll consider that. But the final determination is in those public officials in these types of matters, to make, in the parents, to, to make a decision. The public officials are, um, are figures that we vote in and periodically get that uh, vote of approval or disapproval by elections. Right. And then you put your trust in those public officials to take the information public comment is normally allowed particularly on major or, or material decisions um, and that is the process that allows the public to communicate to that public official what their concerns are or what their support is and the public official is to consider that information along with everything else and make the final decision yeah yeah, there is no American Idol call-in number There's for not. municipal decisions. Well, there are call-in lines, but yes, uh, <laughs> you, you, you don't actually have a vote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's interesting, and we see that in broad spectrum across the various uh, municipal bodies in our country right now. Let's transition a little bit. We, we, you talked about the way that municipalities spend money, raise money. Um, money is really key to many of our municipalities state's municipal laws, at least here in Indiana, um, the way that a municipality can raise funds, the way that it can divest itself of funds or, or choose to spend on projects is very different than how a business or an individual could do that. For instance, if, if Creek DeVault wanted to build a new firm uh, or a building or a campus or, or make an expenditure, it could go to a bank, could go into savings and just simply make that decision in its structure and in, in its management level. In the municipal arena, that's very different. Correct. Yes. And, and I think it's uh, intentional. Uh, the intent there is so uh, to, to allow uh, Indiana has benefited from being fiscally conservative. And uh, part of that process is uh, to 
require the municipality to meet certain requirements when making these decisions and using tax dollars, as well as part of, again, going back to the disclosure laws, um, part of the process is to provide transparency to the public so the public can evaluate um, the, the ultimate and final decisions. Um, but there is no, uh, you know, there is no real impact that the public can make other than appearing at meetings and expressing their displeasure, which uh, it sometimes changes the ultimate final uh, decision that the municipality or public official will make. Yeah. And, uh, you know, during those, pu- we talk about those public meetings. Let's talk a little bit about the actual nuance of the product. So I, I recall back in the day, I, I, would, I wasn't alive, but I'm not that old, um, but there was a uh, what we remember to be war bonds during World War II, right? A bond is a way that a municipality can raise money. But nowadays, that a bond is not a bond is not a bond. There are lots of different types of bonds, aren't there? Correct. So instead of a municipality, and it's really not complicated, a municipality can either spend money that it has in its coffers, or if it's doing a larger project, it can go get debt. A bond is simply municipal debt, correct? Correct. Um, the key to the different bonds is how they're repaid, or is there a difference in how they're issued? Um, There are several ways to issue a bond, uh, but you have to, by statute, have that authority to issue bonds. Um, So if you think of a municipality that's building a building, uh, there are ways through its uh, redevelopment commission to issue bonds. There's also ways through the building authorities um, that are statutorily prescribed that can um, have the authority to issue bonds. Uh, It is merely, uh, but there are checks and balances in place for both processes. Uh, There's transparency that's incorporated into the issuance of bonds by different authorities. Um, one other uh, limit on uh, being conservative, fiscally conservative, is the constitutional debt limit. So if a, a municipality wants to build a building and they are building a building with bonds that have uh, general liability or liability to the city that's not based on a certain identified revenue source, then there there's going to be a limit to the amount of debt that they can take of that nature. Uh, The way that to be conservative and the way to make sure you've got money to pay that credit card bill is to to not have those limits where there is identified revenue and you base uh, the, the repayment obligations on a certain amount or percentage of that expected or projected revenue and normally it works out well. Uh, to where you have excess dollars when you are taking on debt. So bonds are not necessarily an evil. It's a way for municipalities to um, to to take uh, complex projects that have significant funding re- requirements and figure out revenue and apply it, or they can take it uh, to their general fund and have general obligations, but there are limits to those that the, the statutes and, and in Indiana, you talk about our fiscal conservatism. In Indiana, those limits are very strict. As a matter of fact, it's, it's, it's only 1%, I believe, of, of your gross uh, revenue as a, as a municipality. Is, is that, is, am I saying that right? That's right. So, um, 
So that that is a very conservative approach. You know, we look at municipalities across the in states, even across the nation that do not have uh, constitutional debt limits or that have higher or easier ways around those constitutional debt limits. And that's where you see that their debt debt service obligations exceed their revenue. Um, and we have in Indiana a surplus for that reason because we are very uh, limited in, in what we allow the municipalities to do without ha- identifying revenue. And we as a firm, we have the ability and we routinely advise municipal clients on how to navigate those debt options and how to legally document and proceed with incurring debt, uh, whether it's constitutionally limited in a a general uh, debt obligation, or if it's a revenue bond that is tied to a specific project. That's right. That's right. And so for the listener who is uh, tied to a municipality or wants more information, we always have more information on our website in that regard. Yes. including papers that you've authored about these exact topics. Absolutely. So we've got uh, information that's available on our website. You can also reach out and contact one of us just for uh, if, if there's a concern or a question uh, for initial consultation to discuss what the challenge is, and we'll figure out if we can help you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to shift gears again because part of your practice, even though you are municipal law Uh, public finance is, in fact, working with private developers. Uh, You mentioned that at the beginning, and I wanted to focus on it, especially from that, what I think you guys call a public-private partnership. That is a fairly new concept. I think it's really taken off in the past few years. I think in Indiana of some of the economic development activities that real estate developers have, and other developers have taken advantage of. I'm, I'm from our Mishawaka office, and I know that the regional cities initiative spent, uh, made a significant amount of funds available and made a significant impact um, on that community and changed uh, you know, the, the, the landscape of downtown South Bend, downtown Elkhart, downtown Mishawaka. Um, let's talk about that process because it is very complicated. Uh, a developer has a lot of options in working with a municipality to get a project done. Yes, um, there are a lot of ways to deliver a project or deliver financing to a project. Um, so a municipality has various choices uh, of the financing model for public infrastructure. Um, th- you look at airports, you look at um, you know the, the municipal centers or the, the mayor's offices uh, and administrative offices of the municipality. And you can, the municipality has the option to uh, have someone uh, um, build and transfer that facility, which then puts the construction risk to the developer. Um, and once all of the the facilities have been constructed, transfers that uh, to the municipality uh, to take out with bond financing or some other financing that lowers the risk to the municipality. So you don't have you avoid all the construction risk and you put that on a private entity, which ultimately ends up being a more efficient process for a municipality that's not an expert in development. Um, You've also got projects, um, you know, build, operate, transfer. You've got, uh, you know, the development side of uh, facilities that come into play. Um, You've also got uh, 
properties where the municipality knows it doesn't want to be a property manager, but knows that they need to plant um, uh, services uh, closer to the constituents or the residents of that municipality. Um, and so they work with private industry to bifurcate what is actually going on in that transaction. The, the municipality may want to rent space because they don't want to manage the property, but then have a builder and operator of that space, which then again bifurcates some of the risk away from the municipality. Uh, they have an identified uh, obligation in terms of rent, but then you've got the management side that has certain risks and maintenance obligations that can be undertaken by uh, the the private industry. Yeah, and uh, you know that's a that's an interesting world. It's an interesting way to develop. It's an, it's both beneficial for the municipality because it can maybe leverage some of the the uh, abilities of private developers, and it's also probably pretty good for private developers because they can get themselves into spaces that they otherwise wouldn't have had an opportunity to. Um, but I will say, you know, caution to the listener navigating that process of a public-private partnership, whatever that partnership might be, reminds me of any number of scenes from Indiana Jones where if he got it wrong, he got smushed by the rock um, or he fell through the crevice into the chasm below. You really do need to know the sequence and follow strict guidelines that are set in in, in both Indiana and local uh, laws, right? That's right. That's right. And so um, to to... Uh, reduce some of those risks. Uh, statutory law applies and requires you to go through a uh, an RFP or request for proposals process. So if you are trying to um, trying to develop or the municipality is looking for a property that they want to develop, the best way to figure out what the best deal or best arrangement is is to go through a process and ask the private industry. Um, for proposals on this is what we need. We need space in this area so we can have these many people uh, operating out of this space. What would you propose as the project that you would construct and undertake to construct um, for the benefits that we need? And that then uh, that process allows for several developers, several uh, members of private industry to provide a proposal on what they would do which gives the municipality options to um, to develop that property. All right. Well, um, on that note, I'm sure that we could go on for a while. Um, thanks for joining me today. I know you've got a busy day. Uh, thanks for making time. And hopefully you'll be back on the Creek DeVault podcast someday with uh, more information on uh, municipal law or public finance. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.